Now, if we look at Daniel chapter 9, and we look at verse 24, we come to the heart of the passage. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Let's notice here in the handout, if you see there, the heart of the prophecy is given in the very first verse. And notice what he says. It is... In Daniel 9.24, there, after I have that reference, of the six things mentioned in Daniel 9.24, the first three have to do with the problem of sin, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. Now, I want you to hold your hand there, and let's turn over to the book of Hebrews. Let's turn to the book of Hebrews, and let's look there at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 26, and that's on page 1872. And I'm going to pick it up at verse 24. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. Now I want you to focus on those words for a moment. What was the temple that was built by Solomon? It was a copy of the true temple. What was the temple that was rebuilt during the days uh, when, when, when Israel returned from the captivity and rebuilt in 520, completed in 516, and then remodeled beginning in 19 BC by Herod the Great? What was that temple? It was a copy of what? A copy of the true one. He calls it a man-made thing. Now, there are a lot of Christians who believe that the Jewish temple is going to be rebuilt. I'll give $1,000 to the first person who can prove to me that it is going to be rebuilt. I have the money. I'll give you $1,000. There's no evidence whatsoever in the Bible that it's ever going to be rebuilt. Why? Because its whole purpose, as we see in Daniel's 70 weeks, was fulfilled in the death of Jesus. And so we see here, notice what he says, verse 24, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Look at verse 25. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Verse 26, then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. Now notice these next words. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. When did the end of the ages take place? When the Lord Jesus Christ was born. When the Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth for three and a half years, when the Lord Jesus Christ was put to death on the cross, when the Lord Jesus Christ was buried, when the Lord Jesus ascended to heaven, having been raised from the dead, when the Lord Jesus Christ sat down on the Father's throne and sent the Holy Spirit, that's when the end of the ages began. 
Notice he says here, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Notice the explicit statement. What did he do? To do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So when you look back at Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, and you see these things, the very first thing there, to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. In other words, I want you to understand this. As God is my witness, this has been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not looking for something in the future. Daniel's 70 weeks was fulfilled when the Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross. Look exactly what he did. To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. And you see that right there in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 9. And there in that second sentence of verse 26. Hebrews 9, 26. But now he has appeared what? Once for all. It ain't going to happen again. He will come back. But he won't come back to deal with sin. He's already dealt with sin. My only hope for the United States of America... My only hope for the United States of America is what Jesus did on the cross in 30 A.D. That's my only hope. Why did God shed His grace on, on this country? I believe one reason was that very many Christian people came here and sought the Lord and sought to obey Him in every area of life. I believe God shed His grace on this country in response to the pleading prayers of His people. And so what I want you to understand is the hope of Israel and the hope of you and me as individuals and the hope of our nation is what happened on the cross in 30 A.D. Notice what he says again in in verse 26 where he says, But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Has sin been done away with? Yes. That's explicitly, absolutely, exactly what the Bible says. Christ did away with sin then. Well, what about sins you and I commit today? They've already been paid for. They've already been paid for. You don't have to worry about sin if you're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins have been paid for. The debt has been paid in full. And then he says in verse 27, Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, if you notice this, going down in the handout, the second paragraph after Hebrews 9, uh, 2, 9.26, Jesus came into this world and, to do more than remove the guilt of our sins. He perfectly obeyed the law of God that his righteousness might be credited to our account. He came that God's righteousness might be given to all who believe. Romans 3.22. Now, notice... If we go back to Daniel's 70 weeks, the 70 weeks, what? They climax in this. 
to finish transgression, Daniel 9, 24, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Do you know that the Lord Jesus Christ brought in everlasting righteousness? He did that. And if you look while you're still in Hebrews, look back to Hebrews 9 and verse 12, the previous page. And he says there in verse 11, page 1871, Hebrews 9, 11, When Christ came as high priest of good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. Why do people think there's going to be another temple built in Jerusalem? Why do they believe that? Because they fail to read the Bible in its context, its historical context. All of the fulfillment that took place in 70 AD when the Lord Jesus Christ destroyed that temple because it was useless, it was no good, it had no purpose any longer on this earth. And notice what he says in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. The greater and more perfect tabernacle is the one that's in heaven, not the one that Moses erected in the desert. He says, that is not man-made, that is to say not part of this creation. And notice verse 12, he did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood having what? Look at that expression, having obtained eternal redemption. Now I want you to say something about the Lord's Supper. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in a little bit. The Lord's Supper is not a re-sacrifice of Christ. Contrary to what some religious leaders concocted in their own imaginations centuries ago. Why, what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is three things. It looks back to an historical reality that the Lord Jesus Christ was lifted up on the cross to die once for all for our sins. It's a present reality in that by the Holy Spirit we have true communion with the Lord Jesus Christ when we seek Him through this meal. And it points to the future. He's coming again. Do this till I return. But notice what we're told here. He obtained eternal redemption there at the end of verse 14 turning back to Daniel 9:24 page 1389 he says after the first three things that have to do with washing away sin to finish transgression to put an end to sin to atone for wickedness to bring in everlasting righteousness how in the world can anybody who reads the bible ever think that this is something in the future when the book of Hebrews tells us it's already happened. What happened when Jesus died and rose again? He brought in everlasting righteousness. Looking back at Hebrews, he did what? He's obtained eternal redemption. 
eternal redemption. And then he goes on and says, the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Now turn with me, if you will, for a minute back to Romans chapter 3, because this is so clear. Romans chapter 3. And this is what we discover. Romans 3.21, page 1750. And again, you've got the handout. I encourage you to look at it when you get home. So the next thing he does is, is he brings in everlasting righteousness is verse 21, Romans 3. But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. People are incurably self-righteous. Self-righteousness is the mark of people in their natural state. I'm better than you are. That's the essence of self-righteousness. I'm better than you. I'm better than you. I'm not good, but I'm better than you are. I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you are. That's the essence of self-righteousness. And there's a little self-righteous Pharisee inside every single solitary one of us. We think that we're going to be heard when we pray because we pray a lot. We think we're going to be heard when we pray because we've done this or that. We think we're going to be greatly blessed financially because we've given a lot of money. Well, we look at our country and say, well, we're better than other people. If you really know the history of the country, you realize we're not any different than other countries. The only real difference is the system of government that was ensconced in our Constitution that stomped down kings so that we are in a republic. That means it's a limited form of government. That's the blessing. And the freedom to worship God according to the Scriptures. That's the great blessing. But in terms of our record of rights versus wrongs, if we're weighed in the scales, we're going to be found wanting just like Belteshazzar was. And so notice what he says here. He speaks of a righteousness from God apart from law. The righteousness of God, what does that mean? I want you to understand something as you prepare to take the Lord's Supper. When you take the Lord's Supper, you're not just coming as somebody whose sins have been washed away. You're coming with a positive virtue on your account. In other words, what I want you to understand is we have two things in what Jesus did. We have his passive obedience. That meant that he suffered in your place doing the will of God to atone for your sins. But he also did something else. He kept the law perfectly. And his perfect obedience is credited to your account and my account when we believe. That's the righteousness of God apart from the law. Has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. Look at verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What does that mean? We're justified without a cause. Why are you going to heaven? Why am I going to heaven? There's no good reason. You deserve to go to hell. So do I. 
That's why we don't point fingers at other people and say, well, we deserve to go to hell. But what are we told here? We're told that we're justified freely. That means justified without a cause. What's the only reason you're declared righteous by God? What Jesus did for you. Nothing in yourself. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I claim. We're justified freely, that is without a cause, by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in His blood. He did this to demonstrate His justice because in His forbearance He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What does that mean? It means all that time that Israel and Judah disobeyed God's law, all that time that they followed their own economic system rather than God's economic system, and they suffered the Babylonian captivity because of it. They didn't really get what they deserved because God held back His justice until the sin could be paid for. You see, he held back in this forbearance. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Well, didn't they get punished? Yeah, but not the way they deserved. If they got what they deserved, it would have been like what happened with Korah and the others when the earth opened up and swallowed them whole down into the pit of hell. He says, he left it unpunished. Verse 26, he did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. We won't finish Daniel 9.24 today, but the point I'm making here is this. Daniel 9.24 points to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins, to wipe out our sins. There's no record. Where's the record of my sins? Where's the record of your sins? Before the judge of all the earth, the only one whose judgment really matters, there's no record of my sins or your sins. And so he did it, verse 26, to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just. Sin has to be punished. It will be punished for those who don't know Jesus. They are looking to a hellish future. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. What does that mean? To justify is to declare righteous. The moment that you put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the gavel comes down and you are declared not guilty. You will never face trial again. But more than that, skipping down... To chapter 4, look at what we see in chapter 4, verse 4. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. Does God owe you anything? Doesn't owe you anything. Now notice verse 5. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. What does that mean? It means God takes wicked people like you and me and Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi and the good justices and the bad justices in the Supreme Court, whoever they happen to be, I don't know, God knows. He takes all those people, and what does he do? If they're trusting in Christ, this is what he says, 
to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked. That means God declares them righteous. His faith is credited as righteousness. Look at verse 6. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's a powerful, powerful statement. What does that mean? The moment that you believe, the moment that you repent of your sins and cast yourself on God's mercy in Christ, He issues you a sin credit card. I've got one. Do you have one? What is a sin credit card? It means that the unsearchable riches of Christ back up my sin credit card. Whenever I sin... What happens is that sin is put to Jesus' account, but it's already been paid for 2,000 years ago. I have a sin credit card. God does not charge my sins to me. He charged them to Jesus once for all time 2,000 years ago. And so as as I end the sermon here at the Lord's Supper, it's important to remember something. And what it is is this. You're not worthy to take of this meal. The only people that can take of this meal are perfect people. But you know what? In the eyes of the judge of all the earth, I'm perfect. And if you've put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're perfect. And God has given you a sin credit card. And that sin credit card says, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. I can't earn my way. I'm not worthy. But here's my card. In the old days when the Presbyterians were persecuted by the Episcopalians in Scotland, they had to have communion services out in the wilderness. And they were given communion tokens. I've seen them in Montreat in the old museum that was there. A communion token meant that when you were going to go take communion, you had, been, you had met with people who had examined you that you truly were trusting in Christ alone for salvation as He's offered in the gospel. And when you're out in the wilderness, and crags and all of the places there, in the wilderness of Scotland, and they would meet you, you would hand them that communion token. Well, my communion token is my sin credit card. My sins have been put to Jesus' account And God will never charge them to me again. And that's what David celebrated. Now David was a man who needed a sin credit card because he committed adultery with one of his most loyal followers' wife, got the man drunk, and then committed adultery with the man's wife, and then then he had the man murdered. But David got a sin credit card. And you can read about that sin credit card in Psalm 32. Lord, we thank you for the Lord's Supper. As we lift to you the elements of this supper, Lord, would you grant to us to remember that we are standing on this side of Daniel's 70th week, midpoint where the Messiah was crucified. And grant to us, O God, gratitude. Lord, we could be worth millions of dollars. We could be worth billions of dollars, as some people are. But without that sin credit card, we're flat broke. 
before you. Thank you for the sin credit card. Thank you that Jesus paid it all. Thank you that we are entitled to come and celebrate. And all you ask of us is to celebrate in a worthy way. In Jesus' name.